Welcome to the Climate Conversation. I'm Dan Brissett, Executive Director of the Environmental and Energy Study Institute. And with me as always is my intrepid co-host, Sydney O'Shaughnessy. Hi, Sid, how are you doing today? Hi, Dan, pretty good. I'm excited to recap our fourth Congressional Climate Camp, just like we always do every week. And this one was super interesting. So if you're intrigued by any of the, the quotes we pull from our speakers, I really recommend checking out the the full recording on our website. Congressional Climate Camp was a bit of a journey. Um, it was an attempt at providing the basics about climate policy, environmental policy, clean energy policy to a congressional audience when we couldn't be with them in person. Um, and you know, last fall, when it was just a gleam in our eyes, uh, we weren't sure what to make of it. But now, after we've just completed the fourth uh, session, win-win, uh, adaptation and mitigation win-wins, uh, looking back, we covered a lot of ground. And I agree, I really enjoyed number four. We started with budget, appropriations, and stimulus. Then we went sector by sector to talk about um, where emissions actually come from. We looked back, looked at past Congresses, what's been tried, public attitudes, and then April 30th, Federal Policy for Mitigation Adaptation Win-Wins. It was a great okay. series and so great, in fact, that we've even decided to tack on a fifth episode or a fifth installment uh, <clears throat> in May, specifically looking at how budget reconciliation could potentially be used to advance climate solutions. Which is very exciting, that bonus climate camp, but dialing in on our fourth one, when we talk about those win-wins, what we're really talking about is we're looking at climate solutions that simultaneously reduce greenhouse gas emissions and increase resilience to climate impacts. So the speakers that we had on for that climate camp talked about all, all these different solutions to advance environmental justice, job creation, conservation, um, and, and other topics like that. So we had five speakers um, and we covered a lot of ground. Um, and our first speaker, was uh, Baskar Subramanian. Uh, he is with the Maryland Department of Natural Resources. He's the uh, chief of the Shoreline Conservation Service. And he helped us understand the mitigation and adaptation of nature-based solutions in coastal areas, which of course Maryland has a lot of. Um, you know, and you know, with, with the current pand pandemic situation, we believe that, you know, uh, these, these projects, these resilient projects are held extremely important to ensure that the public is able to access these coastal areas and a continuous investment in coastal infrastructure projects help drive local job creation. So the take home message is first and foremost, working with nature and not against it is one of the most important way to move forward. Um, the second thing, the second uh, take home message is plan for tomorrow, today. After Dr. Subramanian, we went from the coast all the way to the agriculture sector. And we heard from Dr. John Quinn, who is an associate professor of biology at Furman University. He spoke a lot about how the agriculture sector is diverse. So solutions that work in one area may not always work in the other. Here's his take on that. And, and lastly, you know, if we think about the impacts of climate change, um, modeling projects that by you know, 2050 or in, in the future, um, yields are going to be affected across much of the um, United, you know, particularly in the Eastern United States as temperatures increase 
as um, the frequency of drought becomes more common, um, where we grow particular products and where our important agricultural regions, um, they may see um, yield shift. So what are our potential solutions then from the agricultural sector? Um, what options do we have before us that can potentially help address this? I, I always, I, I think I, I want to continue to um, re uh, restate the fact that agriculture is a diverse system. And so what might work in one area might not work in the other. Um, and so whether, you know, talking about range versus cropland or growing vegetables versus growing grains, um, in the same way, these, these six images here highlight the complexity of, of different agricultural systems. Um, everything from you know, a highly irrigated system in the top middle in Kansas, where you know, we think about what is the importance of irrigation e efficiency, um, to you know, smaller diversified fields that you know, might, you know, irrigation is the problem, but maybe you know, uh, crop rotations are a more important solution. And then uh, we heard from Ross Vaughan, founder and CEO of Vaughan Timbers about mass timber and the role of sustainable buildings, sustainable wood buildings as carbon sinks. And the sort of second follow-up question, you addressed this at the, be the beginning of your presentation, but I'd like just to ask you about it again, because I think for a lot of staff people, maybe there's a, an inconsistency and incong incongruity here between you know, the idea that, well, using more wooden buildings, how is that not actually bad? for forests. Yeah. Just very briefly, could you explain a little bit more about how increased use of, of wood and buildings is actually um, good for our forests or could be good yeah. for our forests? Yeah, so we have like two types of things going on in our forest. We've got some very actively managed industrial timberlands. Um, and that's just kind of market-based stuff. And, and that's out there. The other side of it is we have a lot of federally owned and managed lands. And what happened in the, you know, this, the 1960s, 1970s led into the 80s was a growing environmental movement, a growing focus on what are we doing out in our landscape, in particular our public lands. And the, the Forest Service and the Bureau of Land Management, which between the two of them, I think it's about 400 million acres um, and not all of it's forested, but the bulk of it is. Um, basically, they decided in the, the late 80s and early 90s that we've got to change some things. And instead of changing and adapting, they stopped. So we went from like 12.6 billion board feet annually of harvest on, those, on the Forest Service lands in particular, we dropped down to 1.8 billion. We've never got over 3.3 billion since then. It might be 3.5. Um, and we've changed technology. So we're counting smaller trees now that we weren't counting when we were developing those numbers before. So we've, in that every year during that time, the trees have grown, not only like up, but out. And we filled the forest with all of this fuel. And we need to go back and revisit that. We don't need to look at it from an extraction standpoint. We have areas like on the Colville National Forest where the federal uh, lands are contributing back $1,000 an acre while they're doing forest restoration because the infrastructure is built for that place. You go to someplace like New Mexico or Eastern Arizona or parts of Wyoming and Colorado and, and Utah where they've 
lost their forest infrastructure because that forest reacted a little, I think, too aggressively uh, to the, the um, concerns of the public instead of shifting, right? So there should have been a shift, but what we got was a, a shutdown. And so we lost the infrastructure. So now it's costing the government $1,000 an acre and very limited scope in the treatments that they can do around these communities and other infrastructure where if we right-size the forest industry and we bring sawmills that are dedicated to that small diameter back into those communities, we can create products that really work well. And I think that creating that market, and I know we have a really crazy lumber market right now that's got a lot of factors that go into it. Um, we shouldn't focus on that. We should focus on what we need to do for the long term. We need to manage our federal forest lands. That does not include talking about roadless areas. It does not include wilderness areas. It talks about managing the already roaded, previously managed landscapes in and around communities. And these communities in many cases have already gone through the process to identify those lands. We just need to have the um, institutional fortitude to go implement these things. And as we talk about an infrastructure plan um, going across the country, I think that is a critical thing and it adds jobs to your other point in communities where they're really critical. And I saw a stat recently, as well within the last two or three years, where if you looked at the impact of jobs in rural communities versus jobs in urban communities, you know, if you had a hundred jobs in a community of three or 4,000 people, the impact is like hundreds of thousands of jobs in a major metro marketplace. So I think those are just important things. There's a ripple effect there and a circular economy that we can create. And I would just say there are examples around the world where they're doing this, right? They're doing this in places like Sweden and in Norway and in Austria, where they are not over harvesting their lands. And they're creating these wonderful products that come from nature that are high efficiency buildings and everything else. So yeah, I know it's a long-winded answer to your question, but you know, really passionate about it. I think it's a wonderful thing. And kind of building off of mass timber, we then talked about energy efficiency through building codes, which I found was really interesting because you never, you don't really think about how building codes can really impact resilience and energy efficiency. And our speaker to kind of tackle that topic was Kim Cheslack, Director of Codes for the New Buildings Institute. All right, real quick, I'm gonna just preview what might be some policy solutions to make all of this possible. At the federal level, appliance standards create an issue with what we call in the building code world, federal preemption. Basically, the fact that the federal government controls the appliance standards limits whole pages of my code book. Um, and those limits on the efficiency of building systems limits the overall progress of the code to meet high performance building targets. If we can't adjust those uh, systems to be more efficient and mandate that they be more efficient, our whole buildings are kneecapped. Additionally, there's a federal role in the certification of model energy codes and the review of state energy codes. This is the current map of how the states have adopted the codes. There is a real lack of um, enforcement at the DOE and the federal level to require that these states bring their codes up to, you know, 
even the penultimate version of the most recent model code would save hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, in the pockets of consumers, but also the required energy and carbon that we need. And then there's federal programs. And I want to say that programs like Energy Star Homes and DOE's Net Zero Energy Ready Home, they have great marketing, right? There are YouTube videos. But these programs need to be focused not only on producing a fairly efficient home, but a very efficient home, the most efficient home, and they need to be zero carbon. This great marketing really needs to be combined with the climate solutions we need to be able to push the market forward. And our fifth panelist was Jackie Patterson, Senior Director, Environmental and Climate Justice Program at the NAACP. And what Jackie helped us do is put all of this in perspective um, and um, helping us think about as we pursue policies that advance adaptation, uh, adaptation and climate mitigation, um, that we're also doing so in a way that advances environmental justice goals. First of all, it's kind of foundational when we talk about where we need to be is to, to we have to collectively reject the myth of scarcity and embrace the reality of abundance, whether we're talking about regenerative, regenerative systems of, of food, whether we're talking about the regenerative design that we need for our buildings, whether we're talking about the regenerative nature of energy, if we do it, if we do our energy through clean energy, then it's possible for us to really reach the, the heights that we need to reach in terms of the types of transitions that we need in our society, away from an, a society and practices and policies that are, are doing what they're there were intended to do. We talk about kind of unintended consequences, but we also know that, that, that contrary to this notion of the nation being founded on principles of, 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 of freedom and religious freedom and liberty and so forth, that was actually founded on practices of exploitation, extraction, domination, and, and displacement. And so we have to turn away from that and shift to a society. And it's possible. It's not this utopian concept. We know it's been done in different places. And we'll talk about some of these examples. But we have to shift to a society that's rooted in principles and practices around regeneration, around cooperation, because we're all we're all interdependent. The ecosystem is interdependent, and we have to lean into that interdependence, or it's all going to continue to fall apart. Whether it's bee colonies, ant colonies, we all the the nature has has um, has modeled for us the way that we need to be. And if we just lean into biomimicry and uh, and and replicate the, the the divine design of our earth systems, then we can really we can all thrive and not and 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 instead of just some of us barely even surviving from the shoreline. We, we've already had folks talking about energy democracy. Um, again, following state and local leadership, we have the great work of the Portland Clean Energy Fund and of the Future Energy Jobs Act in Illinois, uh, the offshore wind bill in Maryland, the key to each and every one of those policies was having everyone at the table, making sure that we develop those policies in a way that are intersectional. It wasn't just about energy, it was energy with the through line of economic justice. So making sure that there's provisions for local hire provisions, there's provi provisions for fair chance hiring, that, and that, and that um, local frontline communities, there's, racial justice, um, disadvantaged business or enterprise provisions. 
and um, the local communities are in, in the lead. And our national um, policies have to follow the same, having a national energy efficiency resource standard, making sure that we're helping um, rural communities, again, not forgetting anyone, that there is that we need to eliminate the margins, not just address people who are on the margins, but not actually have margins anymore. Again, thinking aspirationally, we have to think beyond kind of making things better for people who are poor, making things less bad for, you know, for people uh, with different racial, for racialized people, we have to actually eliminate those barriers as opposed to just mitigating those barriers. And after hearing from all five of our speakers, I think the main takeaway was that we need all people on board for tackling these climate solutions. And there's a lot of different ways and policies and things in process or progress right now that are tackling multiple issues at once. And that was my, my big takeaway. What was your big takeaway, Dan? Oh, I had lots of takeaways. I think one that we didn't talk a lot about during the briefing, but I've been thinking about um, is we highlighted four of these win-wins, but in fact, there are many, many more than that. Um, and so as we were thinking about where we would focus our attention of Congressional Climate Camp number four, um, you know, we probably left a lot of policies sort of undiscussed. Um, and I think one thing that we will have to do going forward is make sure that, you know, we give, uh, we find ways to give equal time to some of these other solutions as well. Um, you know, we ha we'll have briefings uh, since in between the Climate Camp number four and when this podcast is dropping, for instance, we're going to have a briefing uh, that we're hosting uh, in partnership with uh, U.S. Nature for Climate, all about natural climate solutions. And we're going to be talking at that briefing, or we will have talked at that briefing, about lots of additional win-wins. Um, but that's probably one of my takeaways. Um, the other maybe just quick takeaway is the idea that if we really double down on those four things, um, those four policies, those four issues, Think of where we'd be. We'd have more resilient buildings. We'd have more energy efficient buildings. We'd have more sustainable buildings. We'd have more jobs in forestry. We would have reduced wildfire risk. Uh, we would have um, more resilient shorelines. Uh, we would have um, um, a more sustainable source for our food. We would have um, carbon sequestered in agricultural lands. Um, we would be a lot better off if we even just focused on these four things um, and um, made investments that are even roughly in line with their potential to deliver us benefits. And as Jackie reminded us at the end of the briefing, uh, doing so can be done um, in a way that advances environmental justice goals. So with any luck, our audience uh, agrees with that take. Um, and um, it would be great to see some progress on these four areas and other areas that provide us adaptation mitigation win-wins uh, this Congress. Definitely. And if you like the snapshots we provided you today, I highly recommend, just like I did in the beginning, to go check out this um, climate camp number four. Um, you don't have to watch the whole thing. You can just jump into the section that you were most passionate about. Um, but if you're interested, head to esi.org slash briefings to watch the entire briefing. There'll also be highlights up there. There'll also be speaker bios and presentation materials. So you can really catch up if you missed it. Thanks, Sid. And thanks as always for joining me on the climate conversation. Uh, this is lucky number 13 in terms of our episode count. So um, 
I hope our listeners are um, uh, finding this a useful resource. Um, drop us a line um, if you have any feedback about how we can improve it. We've got lots of ideas percolating um, in the brains um, that are in my skull and Sid's skull. So we'll be coming up with some cool new ideas coming up over the summer. Um, but thanks as always, Sid, for being a great co-host. Yeah, of course. And remember, if you want to learn more about EESI's work, head to our website at esi.org. Also follow us on social media at EESI online for all of our recent updates. The Climate Conversation is published as a supplement to our bi-weekly newsletter, Climate Change Solutions, and you can sign up for that at esi.org slash sign up. If you like this podcast, please consider subscribing, rating, and review. And reviewing. Thanks for joining us and see you next time.